cursed in between. The cursed in between. And to recap for those who haven't been here for a couple weeks, here's what's happening. We live in a overarching storyline of the Bible that goes like this. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. We find ourselves in this 2018 in the middle, in the fall and redemption part of the storyline. And what we find from Genesis chapter 3 is that this in-between is cursed. It's cursed by God himself as a punishment for disobedience, for eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll get to that in a moment. But it's also cursed in the sense that we have an invisible and powerful enemy that is seeking not only the downfall of all humanity, but seeking the downfall especially of Christians. And we're told repeatedly throughout the Bible that we have an invisible enemy who is bent, I think it's appropriate to say hell-bent, on our destruction. The destruction of the image of God in humanity and the destruction of Christians and Christianity. Friends, we live in a cursed in between. This image here, you have a little guy way down there, and if, if you know, we could pinch on that little guy and enlarge him, you would see he's holding a book, and that book is the Bible, and it's emanating light. And the picture is that the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And you have this giant figure in the back, shadowy, and you got these darts, these flaming arrows coming down, hailing down upon this little guy. And that's a picture from Ephesians chapter 6. With the shield of faith, we can block or extinguish the, the flaming arrows or the fiery darts of Satan himself. Now, these, for our purposes, these flaming arrows are coming at us at such a rapid pace with social media and the 24-hour news cycle. I mean, we are getting flaming arrows at every turn, and things are moving so fast in our culture that I think for some of us, we don't even know how to keep up. Like, so for me, here's an example of how I just get so overwhelmed. When I open my iPhone, um, what shows up immediately is the news, my news app. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, and I I quickly, because I don't want to get sucked into that. Like, because, you know, Trump's in bed with Russia and, you know, terrorists are at the Olympics and all this craziness where I'm like, I was just going on to see if I had a meeting tomorrow at six o'clock and all of a sudden I'm, I'm sucked in. And, and here's what's happening, friends. We are constantly barraged with worldviews every day. Whether you're reading the New York Times, or you're reading the Wall Street Journal, or you're reading blog posts, or you're listening to professors at your university, or you might just be having a conversation with a coworker, you are getting worldview. Do you know what worldview is? Worldview is simply the way you view the world. And every time somebody is talking to you, you are getting a worldview. Every time you watch a show or a series on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, whenever you um, listen to a song, you are getting worldview. And I, I want you guys to think that way. And we as Christians have the privilege of having the Bible inform our worldview. 
In one sense, that is the heart of discipleship. It's to have biblical glasses, and I would say gospel-centered biblical glasses on, that you literally look out at everything, every movie, every song, every blog post, every feed on your Facebook, all of the Instagram posts, and you are seeing them with biblical gospel-centered glasses. And with those glasses constantly on, listen, friends, you will be able to interpret rightly what is happening. What should I not believe? What can I take from this This that is beneficial? How do I view this? Should I take this opinion that this person's trying to give me, or should I reject this opinion? Can this situation be redeemed, or should we throw this out completely? How do I think? Well, the Bible will tell you clearly how to think, and remember from last week, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. What that means, friends, in our, for our situation is when we fear the Lord, His opinion will matter the most. The most. His, God's opinion will have the most weight in our lives. I don't care how many degrees the person has or how many books they've written. It's not to discredit anybody. It's to say, who will have the most weight in your thinking? If you fear the Lord, his opinion will matter the most. Okay? When I was um, in the Dominican Republic checking out the work that, uh, that our partner church is doing up in Gibsonia, it was amazing to me that Google in their app store, their app selection, has an app called Google Translate, and you can literally, you know, the menus are in Spanish, so we're at this restaurant, and you can put your phone over the menu with your camera, and it literally translates it into English. It it blew my mind. So we would go into the home of, of native Dominicans who could not speak any English, and we would talk to Google Translate, and it would type out in Spanish for them. And then they would talk in Spanish and it would type out in English. So we could literally have a conversation through Google. Google is not the 666 mark of the beast. They may become that, but right now they're helpful, okay? Friends, listen, when you have biblical worldview, gospel-centered glasses on, you can interpret just like that anything that's coming at you. And here's my question. How much of the Scripture's truthfulness are you ingesting versus all these other sources? Think about it. I I want you to think to yourself right now, okay, percentage-wise, is it 10% Bible and 90% CNN, Fox News, and NPR? We want to... We want to have the scales tip for the Bible every time. Why? Because with the Bible in our thinking, saturating our thinking, I mean, this is what Psalm 1 is, is just pushing on us. The person who will not wither in the storm and when the drought comes is the person who meditates on the word of the Lord day and night. That means to think over, to mull it over, to ponder it, to refresh it, to rehash it. You're constantly thinking about the Word of God. That way, when you get an article, you're, you're already saturated, and you can interpret that rightly because you have the biblical worldview. Okay, enough. Enough introduction. We're going to talk now about Satan, hyper-freedom, expressive individualism, and the transgender movement. You ready? 
Let's do it. So Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 31, gives us this foundational, and I mean like dig deep, stories down into the ground and pour millions of pounds of concrete foundational thinking on humanity right here in Genesis chapter 1. So I'm going to start at 26, and I think throughout this whole series, we're going to end up in Genesis over and over and over again because it's the book of beginnings. It's the foundational book, okay? So I'm going to start at Genesis 1, 26 to 31, and I'm going to put it on the screen for you as well. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Notice the R. After our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air of the heavens uh, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And 31 is so important. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. I want you to notice in that last verse 31 there, God saw everything. This is the last day of creation. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Angels were not made in the image of God. No other beings are made in the image of God. What is it to be in the image of God? I think Grudem has a really helpful, simple definition. Every way that a a human being could be like God, we are. Made in the image of God. I mean, thousands of of subcategories, but I think that's a good definition. Everything God made, the whole universe and all of its complexity and all the billions of stars and all of the galaxies, all of the plants and animals and angels, I think this is pre-fall here of Satan and his angels too. Everything God had made and behold, it was very good, very good. So before it was good, it was good. This is very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. Now, the it was very good means that for our purposes tonight, when God creates male and God creates female, biologically different and emotionally different and hormonally different, I mean different, God says this is good. And friends, you do realize the assault on gender in the culture says, no, this is not very good. This isn't good at all. Let's extinguish gender and let's let's go so far as to get rid of gender identity and language. Let's use gender neutral language. Let's use they and Z and friends. We are, this is a direct assault on God's design. You do realize that. 
Okay, now we're going to talk about the people caught up in this in a moment, but I'm just talking about the idea now, not the people. I want you to be able to separate what's happening from a, a concept level and what's, being, what's happening as a result in the culture from this concept. Friends, with the Bible in your hand, when you think gender, when you think differences between male and female, we, we should think complementary, beautiful, and very good. Not bad, not ugly, not demeaning, good. Good. Do you have that view of gender? I, I hope and pray you do. God is the God of distinction. He makes distinctions all the time. He loves variety. He doesn't like, in a sense, sameness, though he himself does not change. He creates variety. I mean, you look at, the, at just the amount of tea that is available, and I'm so thankful for that. Right? The amount of different kinds of orchids. My brother is a, like a botanist. And, and you talk to him about orchids and his eyes light up and his heart beat starts going and, and there's hundreds of varieties of orchids. Who knew? Do you know that vanilla comes from an orchid? I didn't know that. He's going on and on about vanilla and orchids. And Friends, God loves variety. And here, with gender, he says there will be two and it will be rooted in biology. So how, how do we know what gender is what? Well, we know because God's design, biologically speaking, man and woman. Now, I, I was in a, a group setting teaching, and we were talking culture, and one of the, the girls was in nursing school, and, and she was expressing to me how confusing it is for her to be in nursing school right now because they're trying to do away with gender and they're trying to figure out how do we teach now? Like, how do we do this? And, and we were talking about hermaphrodites. You know, they're born with both genitals. And, 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 I, and I was like, all right, one, don't expect clarity from people who are themselves confused. Just don't expect it. And two, we have the fall. And the fall accounts for much of what we see in the culture and when we see people born with both genitals, like a hermaphrodite, it, it, it's because of the fall. But in the beginning, it was not so. There was clear distinctions. There was no curse. There was no brokenness of this kind, friends. And I want you to see this, that before the fall, this was the design, male and female complementing each other. And, and I find this amazing. You know, even though right here in verse 31 of Genesis 1, we see that God saw everything he made and it was very good. In Genesis chapter 2, we get the accounting of the creation before Eve shows up. And God says, it's not good that man should be what? Alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him that fits with him, like him but unlike him at the same time. And God creates one like him. And that's what Adam says when he first sees her. Like me, finally. And, and friends, amazingly enough, Adam had God. And shouldn't we say, well, if Adam had God, that should be enough. Yet God himself says, well, it's not good that he should be alone and just have me. <laughs> I'm going to make one fit for him. 
like him, but unlike him at the same time. And we get the description of, you know, Adam going to sleep because God puts him to sleep and he pulls out the rib and he crafts Eve by hand out of Adam's own flesh. And he presents Eve to Adam like a father walking down the aisle with his daughter. And he gives Eve over to Adam in the first wedding. And it's male and female, and it is very good in God's eyes. Because the conclusion after all that, we get this in Genesis 1, and God saw everything he had made, and it was very good. This comes after 26 and 27, male and female, both made in God's image. Now, Genesis 3, as you know, we have Satan coming into the picture. Now, we don't know when Satan fell, but we can assume if all that God made was very good, it was sometime after Genesis 1, 31. And Satan comes to twist, pervert, and distort God's good order, God's goodness of creation. And he comes in, and he begins to twist God's word, tempt Adam and Eve, and get them to rebel. And I'm going to read it in Genesis 3, 4 to 6. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. This is after Satan had said, has God said you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? No, we just can't eat from that one tree in the middle of the garden. And if we touch it, we will die. And Satan directly contradicts God and says, no, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she eats and she gives some to her husband who was with her and he ate and the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked and they hid and they ran from God and we've been running and hiding ever since, have we not? But friends, here's what happened. Satan, in the form of a snake, advised her, you can be like God. And I think the way she was hearing that was, I can have God's wisdom. I can have decision-making power like God. I can know what I don't know. Some kind of freedom that I've not experienced yet. The knowledge of good and evil. And Satan is promising Eve here a freedom and a wisdom and a knowledge that if she will but put faith in his words, she can experience but she must doubt God's words and put her faith in the word of another. And she does. And she believes. And he deceives. And this is a flaming arrow. This is a fiery dart. And it hit with power, with so much power that it brought the universe down. That was Satan's intent. And you see, Satan has been doing the same exact thing ever since. Friends, I want you to be able to listen to the headlines, to listen to the podcasts, to read the posts, to listen to the music, and hear the hiss. That's what I want for you. Because he is still speaking, and he wants us to believe the lies. The father of lies. 
When he lies, he speaks his native language, Jesus said. Can you imagine speaking, you know, Spanish as your second language? Well, Satan speaks lie as his first language. Fluent in lie. Powerful in lie. And we, we just, res- flaming arrows all the time coming at us. Satan promised freedom from God and a more fulfilling path than the one God had designed for them. And they took it. We'll take that path. Friends, he's doing it to you. You do realize that. And we need to wake up by the help of the Holy Spirit and see. We know for unbelievers, this is the issue. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world, Satan, he is the ruler in some sense of this world. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers for what? So they can't see the glory of the gospel shining in the face of Christ. They can't see it. They're blind. Why? Because he's blinded them with his false glory. The promise of freedom, the promise of joy, the promise of fullness, the promise of what you've always been looking for. And God curses them in the ground and the snake. All of the world, all of the creation, we're all living in this cursed place. Which, friends, gives really good clarity to why everything is so messed up and broken. Even what's going on inside of you. That's a compelling answer from the outside looking in. This is why everything is messed up. This is why everything is broken. Because not only is Satan actively at work with his many, many, many demons, unseen forces, powerful personal evil, but but also we're living in a cursed earth, a cursed universe. Robert Bella is a sociologist, and he wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. He, uh, a long time ago in the 80s, coined this, this phrase called expressive individualism. And I'm going to read for you the definition of that because it's amazing how that fits to us now and especially with the transgender revolution. A form of individualism that arose in opposition to utilitarian individualism. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. Let me read that last sentence again. Listen closely. Expressive individualism holds that each person, you, has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if, if individuality is to be realized. Wow. Under certain conditions, the expressive individualism may find it possible through intuitive feeling to merge with other persons, with nature, or with the cosmos as a whole. The idea is uh, helped, I think, and updated by Keller. Keller says, identity comes through self-expression, through discovering one's most authentic desires, and being free to be one's authentic self. It's the lie of the enemy. You got to be free to be you. You got to express who you really are. You got to be authentic. And if anyone is suppressing that authenticity, they need to be removed or that 
system needs to be removed or that structure needs to be removed and, and you're just being held down and you can't express who you really are. You're not really free until you are able to fully express your desires and your feelings and the sense of who you really are. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should because it's Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. Listen. The people who are dead in trespasses and sins, they are following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. He is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's every person. How do you know that? Because the, verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Listen to this. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Now, now listen to J.B. Phillips give a, a more kind of like easy to understand version of that. Listen close and think expressive individualism. To you who were spiritually dead all the time that you drifted along the stream of this world's ideas of living and obeyed its unseen ruler who is still operating in those who do not respond to the truth of God. Did you hear how he expressed that? Listen, he said, you drifted along the stream of this world's ideas of living. So to drift, think of a log just drifting down the river. You drive down Allegheny River Boulevard and you just look out and you say, is that an alligator? No, that's a log. That's a log. And it just drifts with the current. Drift, drift, drift. And for so many of us, dead in sin, following the prince of the power of the air, looks like this. The culture's flowing this way and you're just a log in the stream of the culture floating right along with it. And for most of us, that seems innocent. But here's what the Bible would say. That is obeying the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. How is he at work in the sons of disobedience? By setting up the stream. The current that you're caught in. That's how. It's his current. And if you're just simply floating in it, he's got you. But see, for you, you feel like, I'm just, I'm just living my life. I'm just watching the news. I'm just reading my Facebook. Right? Yet, we get insight from the scriptures into the schemes of the enemy, the methods of the enemy, and this is how he's at work. He's not necessarily, not that this doesn't happen, but this isn't the main way he works. He's not possessing all these people and forcing them against their will to do evil things. Yeah, that's the idea we get from all the horror movies. Like, this is how Satan is at work. He's, he's possessing people, and he's haunting houses, and he's... No. He has set up the world to work in such a way that appeals to your flesh, and it's all about the devil's scheme, and it's hidden, and it's, it's so colorful and appealing, and it looks sugary and sweet, and it's packaged so nicely... It says my friend um, Tim Brendel said in his song, Killing Sin, it, it's excrement covered in whipped cream. It looks sweet, but we've discovered it's sick scheme. Friends, we need to wake up and see what's going on. 
This invisible satanic system is set up to have you drifting right along and not even realizing that there is a giant 3,000 foot waterfall drop up ahead. And for most people, they're going to drop off the waterfall into eternity forever. You realize that? They're just floating along. This is a lazy river. This is fantastic. There is a 3,000 foot waterfall. You're going to smash into the rocks of eternity up ahead. And satanic laughs you could be heard in the background. My daughter and I had a, a very authoritarian-laden conversation today. Um, her being drunk on Disney and drunk on, you know, YouTube kids. We were exercising our authority as parents, having a six-year-old. And just previous, she had put a, I kid you not, a quarter cup of brown sugar in a little bowl of oatmeal a lump of it on there. Like, no, 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 you're not doing that. So we, you know, had to waste a bunch of brown sugar. But then later, you know, this, this was going on all day. This is going on all these decisions that were contradicting. And, and this was the one that blew up. My wife was going out. She wanted to stay home. My, my wife said, no, you're coming with me. Eh, I mean, just rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. All right, you're going to the corner now for, for arguing. So we get her in the corner, and, and the complaint is coming at me as I'm reasonably talking with her, normal tone of voice. You never let me make my own decisions. She's six. You're always telling me what to do, and you never let me choose for myself. She's six. Friends, this is the freedom lie that is so pervasive, my daughter has picked up on it. You're oppressing me. You're abusive because you won't let me make my own decisions. And so we had to gently explain, okay, babe, listen, you're six. You want to wear skirts with sandals and it's 17 degrees out. You realize you'll die. <laughs> You're not wise enough to make your own decisions yet. And so what I had to say to her was, listen, when you're 18 and you can pay your own rent and you can buy your own food and you're paying for your own clothes, and I, right, your dad had said this to you too, right? Then you get to make your own decisions. Now, now what I told her at the same time was, listen, you get to make a lot of decisions, babe. Like we, we let you make a massive amount of decisions, probably more than we should. We are very generous to you. And yet she still has this feeling like she's being oppressed. What do you call that? That's the satanic stream of the culture that she is floating in, friends. She's six. We're all floating in it. And the gospel, this is Jerry Bridges' illustration, would say, get out your gospel oar and row against the stream. And if you pull up the oar for one minute of the gospel, guess what's going to happen? You're going to float right back down the stream. There is no neutrality. You can't be neutral in this. If you're not constantly fighting with the gospel, you are going down the stream. And the water falls up ahead.
Now, I believe in the security of the saints. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation, but you will damage yourself and your relationships and maybe some other people in the meantime. I would say that this is hyper-freedom, kind of the age we're living in. We could call it hyper-freedom. This idea that if you oppose me in any way in my decision making like you are dangerous and you are abusive to me because you won't let me express my individuality you won't let me express what I feel on the inside right it's that idea of you can't judge me didn't Jesus even say judge not unless you be judged and he's like oh you do know some of the bible this is great Right? And, and, and that Keller just rings in my mind when I hear Matthew 7, where, you know, it, when people say, it's wrong for you to tell other people they're wrong. But wait a minute, you're telling me I'm wrong right now, and you're not wrong? See how that works? Wait a minute, how come you get to tell me I'm wrong, but I don't get to tell you you're wrong? It's a power play, and we need to be able to see it. Like, wait a minute, this, you don't get to do that. <laughs> Okay, good. Friends, we need to think deeply if we're going to be effective in the culture, and we need to be humble. Okay, I, I speak with boldness and with authority up here, but when I'm talking to an individual on the phone or in person, I'm not yelling at their face. I'm talking to you guys as a group right now, and I'm not hitting any of you individually. Therefore, I can be more kind of bold and like sometimes pushy, and probably condescending, and I apologize for that. Okay? But in person, I would not talk to you the way I'm preaching right now. Okay? Okay. So Vaughn Roberts has a really helpful book called Transgender, and I would highly recommend it. It's little. You can get through it very quickly, and it's a great resource for you. And he, he describes in this book, Transgender, the expressive individualism that Robert Bella coined. Now listen to this. The world's gospel says this. So this is the good news of the world. For years, our spirits have been suffocated by restrictive traditions and morality. But now we must have the courage to follow our own light. We must resist anyone or anything that stands in our way. We must discover the hero inside ourselves and enter into the freedom that comes when we become who we really are. Doesn't that sound like every Disney movie you've ever seen? Now, now listen, I love the Disney movies. Like, I, I have a six-year-old daughter. I see them all. I mean, the, I, I went to art school, and, and I think it's brilliant, the art and the color and the graphics and the songs. Like, it's brilliant art, but friends, the message is satanic. And I'm not, and I watch them, so I'm not saying burn them all. Let's have a Disney burning festival where we burn all the paraffin. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, when you watch it, you need to be able to see and hear what you're actually hearing and seeing. And if you have the gospel, biblical worldview glasses on, you can see it. You can see it. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to equip you with. That's what this series is trying to equip you with here. So the dictionary would define transgender this way. Dictionary.com. Relating to a person whose gender identity does not correspond to that person's biological sex assigned at birth. 
So the idea here is there are people, and, and, and let's give some background to why this is the way it is. Friends, we live in a broken world. The brokenness affects your mind, your body, your soul, your everything. The brokenness is pervasive. And so I, I, I think that as biology science gets better and neurology gets better, they probably will discover that there are parts of the brain that cause these kinds of things. But that doesn't excuse it. Friends, because we live in a broken world, we should expect when people are born for them to have certain proclivities and other people have other ones. And it doesn't excuse you if you're born that way. Doesn't excuse you. Because we're all born bent towards sin in some way, shape, or form. We all are. And it's the totality of our being. That's what total depravity means. It doesn't mean we're utterly depraved. We're as bad as we possibly could be. It means that every part of us has been infected by sin. And it expresses itself in different ways. And for transgender people, it expresses this way. I don't feel like my biological sex determined at birth. Now, gender dysphoria is another term that if you're into psychology and sociology or you're you know, up on what's happening with the revolution, you know, and here's what it means. A psychological condition marked by significant, listen close, emotional distress and impairment, which means weakened or damaged, in life functioning caused by a lack of congruence, that means agreement, between gender identity and biological sex assigned at birth. So the way that gender dysphoria is described is it's a psychological condition and it, it is marked by significant emotional distress and impairment. In other words, I can't function in the world because I don't feel like I am my biological gender. It's a real thing for a lot of people. And can you imagine that if that was you? What if, what if you were Caitlyn Jenner? What if Bruce Jenner? What, what if you was, were? <laughs> Don't hate on my grammar. Come on. <laughs> Produced two hip-hop albums. Come on. <laughs> KRS-One said that I'm about to quote Karis one in the sermon. Yes, this is about to go down. Karis one said that the English language is not extensive enough that hip hoppers had to create their own words. So get off me, all right? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So the idea here is that imagine, put yourself in their shoes, friends. Like we, we should be treating others as we would want to be treated. Is that not Jesus. And so if you could put yourself in that mind frame and imagine if that was you, that every day you woke up, you felt like you were not who you were. That would be terrible. It's not, it's not, it is imaginary, but it's not imaginary. That's real for so many people. And they feel like because of the cultural stream created by Satan, that until you express that, you will not be free. Until it comes out, and you tell the world, and you start to dress appropriately to your feelings, and you start to identify with how you feel, not how your biology tells you, you will not be free. Can you hear the hiss? 
Exactly. So I just heard it. It doesn't bring freedom. I read an article as I was preparing for this message, and you know there was that Vanity Fair picture of, of Bruce Caitlin, and you know she had her hands behind her back, and they were interviewing the photographers. Why, why did she have her hands behind her back? Do you know why? Man hands. They, they felt like her, his hands, rightly so, are constructed like a man's hands, and they, they did injustice to the picture. So they hid them. Now, now, now Bruce gets up every morning, Caitlin gets up every morning, and she still has her man hands. Like, can you imagine this? Like, what is going on in your head every day? And so my, my, my goal here, friends, is to, is to get you to see that these are people made in the image of God who have bought a satanic lie. They're not our enemies for us to destroy. Not with our blog posts, not with our sermons, and certainly not in person. They are people who desperately need Jesus like you and I need Jesus. And that needs to be our attitude towards transgender or gender dysphoria people. Did you know that there's a bunch of psychological studies that show tons of children have this dysphoria? But if if, if their parents will not do anything about it medically, and a lot do, which is crazy to me, if they'll let it mature, by the time they hit puberty, it goes away. And in the transgender book, Vaughn Roberts says that we also need to be really careful, and I agree with him, that we do not make hyper-femininity and hyper-masculinity the standards. Because if only manly men have massive beards and can swing an axe and can do that thing at the fair where you, boom, you hit the 10. If, if, that's only, if you're a dude, only in that sense, there's a lot of non-dudes. <laughs> right? And I, and, I, and I won't grow mine because it's so gray and I refuse to use that other stuff. What is that stuff you paint in there? <laughs> That was a joke. I'm trying to lighten the moment here. Okay. We're we're running out of time quickly. So Jesus affirms in the New Testament the goodness of God in creation. You ready for this? Jesus, when being asked about divorce and marriage, he re-quotes Genesis, affirms it, and says, this is good. Listen, in Matthew 19, 3 to 6, Jesus says this, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read? I love, that's, that's one of the best answers Jesus gives. But you're a Bible scholar, haven't you read? Of course they've read it. They've memorized it. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, so he's rooting his argument in creation, listen what he says, made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And, and that's pointing back to you can't really image God as a one. You need a two in community, like God is a more than one in community, yet he's one. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, not, let not man separate. We're not talking about divorce right now, but I wanted to show you that Jesus quotes the creation of male and female. He affirms it and he says, this is good. This is in God's design. And listen, friends, will we believe that when God said, this is very good, that yes, this is very good. Will we see the lie from Satan that says, this is not very good. You should be able to fluid in and out of your gender. You know, there's some people who just refuse to take a gender because I'm not, gonna, I'm not taking a side in this. I'm, I'm not a gender. That's a real thing. It's a very real thing. People are just like, I'm not, I'm not male. I'm not female. I'm not bisexual. I'm not genderless. It's cra- it, is this not a satanic plot to destroy God's good binary from biology? This is very good. Do you see it? And the promise is you will flourish. And when they express, they don't flourish, do they? It's a lie. So I think that where we should go from here very quickly and we're done is that we need to get very, very familiar with new identity in Christ. New identity in Christ. So we're talking about identity when we talk about expressing who you are. Like, who are you? That's an identity question. And often, we too, as Christians, have warped identities. Well, I am a pastor. Oh. I am a father. I'm a mother. I'm a husband. I am a whatever. Theologian. I'm a teacher. I'm a... And, and, and see... Often, what we do is we have these lesser identities come to the top and they define us and it's satanic. Because our primary identity, friends, is we are in the image of God, whether you're a Christian or not. So when you see a person who's gender dysphoric or, or transgender, friends, they are in the image of God still. And they have an identity problem. And don't forget, you do too. You are are battling to create your own identity all the time. For some people, they're trying to create it with their work. Some people, they're trying to create it with their possessions. For some people, they're trying to create it with their pleasure. We're always being pushed to make a name for yourself through something. It's identity, and it's satanic. It's expressive individualism. It's hyper-freedom. And we do it too. And here's the deal. We need to say to ourselves, okay, I'm in the image of God. Therefore, that's what gives me value, dignity, and worth. That can't be taken away. That can't be shifted. That's grounded in creation. But then, friends, as Christians, we who have received the grace of God, we have re- who, who have received the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross for us, we are in Christ We have been taken out of the old humanity, Adam, and we have been put into the new humanity, Jesus, and he now defines us. In Christ is the way that Christians are described all through the New Testament. Did you know that? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And then in Romans 8, 29, we learn that we have been predestined to be conformed to his image. 
And we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another as we behold his glory. I mean, this is all through the New Testament. And so we as Christians need to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We get a new identity and we need to fight to make that our primary identity. Like for some of us, our ethnicity is our identity. And it gets us in all kinds of trouble. We, in Christ, as a Christian, must be our primary. And this is the good news that we have to tell people who are struggling with their feeling like they're not their biological gender. Friends, we can say that, you know, you can have an identity in Christ that transcends your feelings, that transcends what your inner self is telling you. You can be in Christ. And that can eclipse all the other identities and the one that you're wanting to make for yourself. Um, I think repentance and faith for somebody who struggles with transgender uh, issues would be not necessarily to stop feeling like you're not your biological gender. I don't think that would be actually what repentance would look like. I think it would look like I will fight how I feel. Because I think for some of these people, they're never going to stop feeling like they feel. And if you make repentance, you cannot come to Jesus unless you stop feeling the way you feel and start feeling like your biology tells you to feel. I think that's an error. But what we can say is if you will turn to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, he could give you a new identity and he will enable you by his spirit to fight that inner feeling you have. And perhaps he will change the way you feel. Maybe he won't, but maybe he will. We don't know what God's going to do. Alan Jacobs is a, a professor. He wrote a book called How to Think, a, Spirit, a Survival Guide for a World at Odds. I would highly recommend this book to any of you who, who like to think. Again, Alan Jacobs, How to Think, a Survival Guide for a World at Odds. And in an interview on that, in, in, on that book, he said this, it's only when you recognize the things that you have in common with the quote-unquote other do you have the possibility of persuading them? You can think of them as deplorable or persuadable. If they are purely 100% deplorable, you will never try to persuade them. You will only try to defeat them. Friends, that is helpful. Do you see, for our purposes tonight, the transgender people as deplorable and 100% deplorable that you will not try to persuade? Or do you see them as made in the image of God in need of a savior and they can be persuaded if God will be at work? Friends, that's the attitude we should have. Therefore, we should love transgender people. Pray for them, right? Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you and say all kinds of nasty things about you. As Stephen is being stoned, Lord, lay, lay not this sin to their charge. Love your enemy as yourself. I mean, my goodness. Friends, we need to not see these quote-unquote others in such a light that we only need to destroy them and destroy their movement. 
Friends, it can't be a Christianity versus them thing in our heads. We got to escape that. That's satanic. We need to be like they are in need of a savior, like I am in need of a savior. That's, that's your common ground. You are a sinner in need of a savior. They are sinners in need of a savior. You're the same. Or are you self-righteous and say, I don't got that problem, and you feel good about yourself? The commonality is you're both sinners in need of a savior, just like me. And I think we can have a more generous attitude towards the quote-unquote other if we see ourselves more like them than dislike them. And the truth is, I think I saw R.C. Sproul do this one time. Heard or, heard or saw, I can't remember. He said, imagine you in the middle, Jesus over here, and Hitler over here. And you're a Christian. Who are you closer to in righteousness? He said, you're piggybacking Hitler. You're on his back saying, give me a piggyback. But see, most of us don't think that way. We think of ourselves as like right here on Jesus. I'm almost the fourth member of the Trinity. That's that's self-righteousness that stinks to high heaven. But in Christ, friends, we are righteous. But in and of yourself, without the Savior, you are Hitler. (laughs) Okay, we're almost done. We have good news to tell that God's care for transgender people would be that he came to live the life they couldn't live, and he died on the cross to pay the price that would be the forgiveness of their sins. Um, George Scipione and I did an interview a couple weeks ago. It's on our website. It's on um, same-sex attraction and polygamy and this whole transgender revolution. And in that conversation, we, he, to, he told us about a friend who uh, had you know, sexual reassignment surgery, and he got converted. And he decided that as an act of repentance, he would be a eunuch for the Lord. Now, for some of you, you're like, what does that mean? <laughs> well, it, it comes from Matthew 19, 12. Jesus, the same text here, Matthew 19, later in the conversation, he says this. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. That's interesting. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. You know what a eunuch is? It means you have removed your biological maleness or femaleness. Or functionally, you're a eunuch, meaning you will not use your biological maleness or femaleness. You will rather commit that to the Lord. Friends, that's good news for transgender people. You have a place in the Bible. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip caught up to on the road? Why was he a eunuch? Well, because when officials were close to any queen, they had to be made eunuchs because, well, if you don't have it, you can't do anything with it. Daniel and his friends that got thrown into the fire, they were probably eunuchs. They're all single. They were probably made eunuchs by the king. 
And, and I think this is good news for transgender people, that there's hope for you, even in your struggle, that you can be a eunuch for the Lord. I'm just trying to give you guys some helpful things to think about and to say, identity in Christ, they're not our enemies to attack, eunuchs for the Lord. And I think Vaughn Roberts in his transgender book, I'm, these last two quotes and we're done. He says, these feelings may describe how you are, but not who you are. That's good. That's, that's really helpful advice for people who struggle with this issue. You could say, these feelings shouldn't define you, but it does describe you. It's identity. Okay, so we do have some biblical things to say, don't we? And we do have some glasses from the Bible to look at this issue with. And it's the gospel. And friends, had not Jesus rescued us from our sin, we would be going down the same stream trying to find our identity in something other than Jesus. Trying to make a name for ourselves in some way, shape, or form trying to express our individuality in some way, shape, or form. You do realize that, right? So let's remember Jesus tonight and that he saved us from who? Well, from God primarily, but from ourselves. From the wrath of God against our sin, but then secondly, man, from ourselves. If God had left us to ourselves, we would destroy ourselves. And we have great hope in the gospel that we're okay not because we're okay, but because Jesus is okay in our place. He gives us his perfection. He takes our sin on the cross. We get treated like we lived his life, and he gets treated on the cross like he lived our sinful lives. And that's the good news we have to tell, friends. And that's the center of our faith. Let's not move to the right or to the left of that. That good gospel news. So let's remember that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight. The brothers are going to come up, Eugene and Gus and Eddie. They're going to hold the elements. Friends, if you're a Christian tonight and you are in good, a good place with the Lord, okay, you're right with the Lord, I want to encourage you to take communion with us. Friends, if you are not in a good place with the Lord tonight, I want to encourage you, now's your chance to do business with the Lord. Like, take this time and meet with Him. Night, guys. Take this time and meet with him and, and tell him what's going on. What, what roadblocks have you put up? And do business with God tonight. You can be right with him tonight, friends. Why wait? Why go out of here not at peace with the Lord? And maybe your act of repentance would be to take communion and say, thank you for your body broken and your blood shed that gives me the forgiveness of sins. Help me to live the way you would want me to live. Maybe that would be an act of repentance.